everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. So, so far, this series has been a fun one to cover. Yes, it has. And again, if you're here and you feel like you need to catch up, make sure you do go listen to the first two parts. We know it is a lot of info, but believe it or not, we aren't even close to being done. Seriously, this is by far one of the wildest stories that we've told on this podcast to date. Last week, we touched on how obviously deadly and horrifying this attack was. But one thing that we really want to keep pointing out is how much worse things could have been. And that's not to undermine what actually happened. This was without a doubt beyond devastating. However, it was nowhere near the level of terror that Shoko Asahara had originally hoped for. So far, we've followed Choko Asahara and his group through a lot. Throughout this series, we've explored his humble beginnings and how his use of his partial sight made him a terror to his peers at the School for the Blind. We also talked about his various attempts at gaining positions of power, both in his youth and throughout his adult life, while also proclaiming that he is Christ. And we say attempts, but really they were just big failures. And we all know by now that a lot of the time, when people who claim they are Christ don't get what they want, it often ends fairly badly. Yeah, it really never is a good sign. So with all of that, we followed the group as they grew from a small yoga studio to an organized group of tens of thousands of followers in both Japan and Russia, including scholars, doctors, and even rocket scientists. And we know that shocked a lot of you. We've had quite a few comments from listeners that said it was hard to understand how such educated people could fall for something like this. I mean, brainwashing is powerful. That's the thing to remember. People were sleep deprived and they weren't eating nearly enough, not to mention the fact that they were forced to listen to recordings of Shoko Asahara basically chanting repeatedly whenever he wasn't actually physically there to chant at them. And on top of all of that, they were drugged a lot of the time and without a doubt tortured. We really want to stress that. We talked about how members would be kept locked up for days or months in boxes to show their loyalty to the group. You can't tell me that's not torture. Like right? at this point, like are they going in willingly when they're drugged, they haven't slept and they haven't eaten? No. These are people who couldn't think straight. If you guys have any doubts, I highly suggest you watch the video footage that's out there. It's honestly, it's really sad. Well, and I think it just goes to show people under extreme duress can't consent properly, you know? Like that is the, that you couldn't be more right. Yeah. I mean, this is as good a time as ever to point out that the majority of the members had no clue that the sarin uh, terrorist attacks were being planned. Most of the people in Om Shinrikyo were victims themselves. There's really no doubt there. Last week, Shoko Asahara's story ended with his execution. But the story of Om Shinrikyo did not end there, so welcome to Om Shinrikyo Part 3. Today we are going to be talking about what happened to the rest of the men who were directly involved with the Sarian attacks. Because remember, Shoko Asahara wasn't actually even there. That's right, we want to talk about what became of the five men who released the gas, as well as their getaway drivers. We're also going to get into what became of the group after Shoko Asahara's death and where they are now. How powerful is a cult once their leader is gone? So do they disband? Do they keep going? Or do they continue to try to grow? Our story is far from over. And trust us, some of this might really surprise you. Last week, we talked a little bit about Shoko Asahara's trial as well as his behavior throughout the final months of his life. 
We ran out of time last week, so we didn't get a chance to go over the trials and the sentencing of everybody else. Something about this entire process that might surprise you a bit is that it actually took forever due to the sheer amount of people that were charged, as well as all the various appeals they put in for themselves. Shoko Asahara was sentenced to death in 2004, but he actually wasn't executed until 2018. Which, again, I want to ask all of you listening, like, how many of you remember hearing anything about this? Because, like, this wasn't that long ago. Like, I mean, I feel like everything from 2016 on is kind of a fever dream to begin with. <laughs> but, like, I'm honestly just shocked that this went over my head when it happened. Because you'd think it would be hard to miss, like, oh, big cult leader execution happens. Yeah, and I don't remember hearing anything about it at all. Nothing on social media, at least. And I feel like... Twitter would have been all over this and 2018 was only five years ago which I always have a hard time kind of wrapping my brain around because when I think of I guess more modern executions I kind of think of like serial killers in the states getting like the electric chair in the 90s and things like that it, it's hard to imagine it only happening a few years ago to me i i kind of tried to look into it and there's a lot of articles about it he was on the cover of time magazine wow like and i'm like what what like alternative reality was this that i missed all of this we did talk about his execution last week so we won't really go over all of that again unless it's really relevant because today isn't about shoko asahara today is about everybody else when you have such a large amount of people so heavily influenced by the same thing, you can't just expect it to break apart and have everything go back to normal for all of those involved. Absolutely. And because of that, we're going to have to uh, kind of backtrack to around the time of the arrests. On December 15th, 1995, the Prime Minister of Japan attempted to approve the use of an old Cold War law, which allowed them to basically legally force the group to disband. Like we mentioned before, any kind of police or government interference towards new religious groups was frowned upon by most of the people of the public. And believe it or not, the attacks really didn't change that. A lot of people were upset that the government took these actions because they didn't think that they had a right to disband the group. Among them were lawyers and human rights activists. The government was still pretty worried about another attack due to the fact that they basically had an arsenal of weapons and chemicals stockpiled. And that was a pretty big part of it. Like, basically, the government's stance was that they were a threat to public safety. And I mean, in this case, I would have to wholeheartedly agree. Because to do nothing after such a tragedy would have been reprehensible. I think that they were in a difficult position because mm -hmm. it was like, if you do something, you're going to have people that are angry. If you don't do anything, you're going to have people that are angry. Like, it was complicated. Yeah. yeah, definitely. The following year, they took it a step further by submitting to the anti-submersive activities law that was imposed upon the group. This law basically exists to allow the government to keep tabs on groups that have committed terrorist activities, and it allows for pretty stiff penalties and other consequences if they're found to be at the risk of acting again. I was curious about this because I'd never heard of it, so I looked into it further, and Japanese law is confusing as hell hell so I'm not even gonna <laughs> pretend to understand it for a moment but what I gathered was that basically it was implemented at the end of the allied occupation of Japan under General MacArthur and after Japan regained their independence in 1952 they used this law to maintain like public safety and security within their country so this whole thing it was hugely controversial and I thought it was interesting to see so many post-World War II and Cold War laws being used to control the group 
Mm -hmm. Um, This whole law, it was never used up until this point. So, I mean, it was kind of interesting that they were bringing out all of these like old laws to try to kind of like get control of the situation. This led to further protests and appeals from Ohm lawyers and various supporters, which probably has a lot of you wondering how anyone could continue to support the group after what they had done. And to be honest, there isn't really one specific answer for that. First, we have to point out that we're still looking at the early stages of the attacks. Yes, a few years had gone by, but most of those involved hadn't even been caught yet. Many group members were still in denial and didn't want anything to change for them, while others basically said, We weren't involved, and we promise it won't happen again. The government reversed their decision about a year later. On July 16, 1996, one of the higher-up members of the group, a man named Kozo Fujinaga, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for not only modifying the truck that was used in the Matsumoto apartment attacks, but also for being one of the main people in charge of building the sarin factory. Something else that we want to talk about today is what became of the various members that we talked about in parts 1 and 2 that died at the hands of the cult. Unfortunately, we don't really know how many people the cult was responsible for killing within their own circles due to how they disposed of the bodies, but they did have members who were unaccounted for. On July 26, the police announced that they would continue to investigate these deaths and that the total count of those missing or known to be dead was officially at 28. The only real information that they could get at this time was from members who claimed to be involved in disposing of the bodies. Later that summer, three Om Shinrikyo buildings were closed due to bankruptcy that the group was forced to declare. This led to a lot of still-devoted members of the group looking for somewhere new to go. And because of this, some people were like, okay, you know what, enough is enough. But there were still people who believed in Om Shinrikyo and even in Shoko Asahara. And I understand that it may be really easy for some of you to listen to this and judge them for staying, but when you've only known this level of sheer insanity for years, it can be hard to let go, especially when you've already lost everything. The majority of these members who stayed had lost their families because of all of this. They had no money and nowhere to go. All they knew at this point was Om Shinrikyo. In December of 1997, eight members of the group were ordered to pay restitution to those victimized in the Matsumoto apartment attacks. The total amount they were ordered to pay was 100 million yen, which is the equivalent of about 1 million Canadian. I'm not gonna lie, I kind of expected that number to be a lot higher considering everything that's happened so far. A million doesn't seem like very much at all. Like, in the grand scheme of things, and just how many people were hurt and affected by it, one million is a drop in the pond. I I mean, we got a million Canadian. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, nowadays I feel like one single person might get a million each kind of thing, but this was a million for many, many people. Yeah. Like, that's nothing. No, it really isn't. Shockingly, in early 1997, an independent panel decided that the government was not allowed to actually ban the group. They agreed that, yes, the group was dangerous and should be watched, but that the Japanese government had no right to force them to disband. Meanwhile, things in court weren't going all that well. The higher-ranking members of the cult were all turning against each other, and needless to say, Shoko Asahara didn't have their backs. Mind you, it wasn't like they had his either. Basically, they were mad because he went around saying that they came up with the idea of the subway attacks and that he was angry because they were saying it was all him. 
he actually went as far as to say that he begged the group with all of his might not to carry out the attacks, but that they had disobeyed him. He's obviously like a shit human being for everything Mm -hmm. he's done and how many people he's hurt. But I gotta say, I hate a sheepish cult leader. We talked about this last week, but he basically refused to talk and he didn't accept any responsibility. It sounds awful, but if he stood up and admitted to what he had actually done, it would have in some way shown that, A, he actually believed in what he was preaching, which I don't think he did, but B, that he wasn't a total chicken shit. No, he was absolutely just a coward who used other people, however he deemed necessary to achieve his goals, and then when faced with the consequences of said goals, he just crumpled. A good leader a chicken shit does not make. No, ma'am. (laughs) The lawyers involved in both sides of the case were also growing increasingly frustrated with how things were going. The defense argued that they didn't have an appropriate amount of time to prepare, while the prosecution wanted answers from Asahara, not meditation and mysticism. Apparently, there was a fair bit of drama during this time, and we really wish that this was one of those cases where we had the access to the court footage. It really would have been something else to see. His lawyers actually threatened to quit multiple times, not because they didn't believe in him, because they had vowed to represent him for a decade if they needed to, but they just didn't think they were being given a fair chance. They also straight up just went on strike a bunch of times. The court expectations were pretty intense and they didn't think that 12-hour days with zero time to prepare in between was fair. This actually worked out in their favor and they were given some days off to prepare. Ex-OM members testified in court about spending obscene amounts of money in an attempt to be closer to Shoko Asahara. And this is where we can really confirm some of the wild and nasty things we talked about last week. We're sure most of you were wondering, so yes, the bathwater was talked about in court. Can you imagine having to testify in court? (laughs) in front of a jury and probably your family about how you drank Shoko Asahara's bathwater while he's sitting right there in front of you. That is embarrassing. I would have much rather seen that than the Danny Rowling footage that we went through. Like, this sounds wild. Like, I picture the feeling you got as a kid when you had to tell your parents that you did something really, really stupid and embarrassing, but like a million times worse. Oh, they had to be ashamed of themselves. Like, I mean, the guy who had to sit there and talk about how he paid over (laughs) $8,000 to cheer. to drink Shoko Asahara's blood? Hello? <laughs> like, oh, a bunch of other people also talked about paying thousands of dollars to have an IV treatment done with that unknown substance. I hate to be this person, but like, I thought about this. I wonder what the substance was. Because so far we have blood, bathwater, and hair. Like, where else do we have left to go? Well, it could, like, it literally could have been anything. You know, they might have gone the Jeffrey Dahmer route. It could have been, like, random cleaning fluids or acid. It could have been blood. And the crazy thing is, if you are, um, what's the word? Like, if you receive a blood donation and you are not the correct type, or rather the blood's not the correct type for you, you can die. Oh, yeah, that's not good. 
No, and not no. to mention just like getting a random infection or whatever. Because these people, I mean, yeah, we had some doctors and medical professionals, but do you think they're doing this in a sterile environment even? Absolutely no, not. God, no. And I mean, this is just like at, at the point where, okay, drinking the bath water, that's gross. But like drinking of the blood and then all the IV stuff, that just Mm-mm. gives the no. biggest ick feeling in the world. Because yeah. that's like it's going inside of you and it mm-hmm. came from inside of him. Mm-hmm. No, no, I would just... Mm-hmm. It's just like infection. That's that's the only word that comes to mind. Yeah. In March of 1997, Satoru Hirata was sentenced to 15 years in prison for his participation in the VX attacks, as well as for his involvement in the killing of the man who was trying to stop his sister from giving the cult their family's life savings. That March also marked the two-year anniversary of the attacks, which was still very much in the forefront of everyone's minds. Tokyo is a city where the majority of people take public transportation. Close to 1 million people a day ride these subways. It must have been nearly impossible not to have it cross your mind. The absolute terror for everyone, even after the attacks were over, everyone knew that they still had tons of members on the outside, many of whom were very upset about the way things were unfolding for them. Many of those affected gathered at a station and spoke to the public about their memories of that day. They also handed out literature about their experiences in an effort to share their stories and just be heard. Uh, Shizu Takahashi, who we talked about last week, was also there. She had lost her husband in the attack when he attempted to clean the sarin off the floor. Her interviews are among some of the most tragic, in my opinion. They're just heartbreaking. It's very sad to see her talk about it. She stated that her goal was to remind people that something like this could have happened to anyone and that the victims were still suffering. Even two years later, many of those present during the attacks dealt with serious health issues. Multiple people lost their sight, while others developed lung conditions, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg. And even so, that's just the physical aftermath of something like this. This must have taken a huge mental toll on all members of the public. It was estimated that around 20% of the survivors were dealing with anxiety or PTSD. However, it's pretty agreed upon that these numbers aren't even close to the reality of how many people were suffering inside. Mental health wasn't being talked about much when it came to the victims, and many agree that the right resources were not provided to those who were struggling. The sheer amount of people who were affected by these attacks is honestly hard to imagine. But during all of this, what was happening with the Russian side of Om Shinrikyo? The Russian government was not happy with how things had turned out with the group. Thirteen different branches were officially ordered to be shut down by a Moscow judge during a huge crackdown. The Russian government also banned the group from appearing on TV or radio. That blows my mind. Like, the idea that Om Shinrikyo programming was playing across Russian TV channels? It just seems like two completely different cultures that should not ever want to mix. It's just two completely different worlds. Like, you're absolutely right. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just such a weird thought. Like, I think they acted pretty appropriately once they realized, like, how dangerous they actually were. For sure. And I mean, in those years, they were just on the other side of being the Soviet Union still, right? So I could imagine they were like, oh shit, mistakes were made. Oh yeah, and they were like, no, we're fixing this right away. We're not fucking around. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because Om Shinrikyo, like we mentioned last week, they had befriended various high-ranking government officials. 
And in April of 1997, a witness testified that the group had paid Oleg Lobov, a former security chief, $79,000 for blueprints of a gas plant. That's not <laughs> a good look. <laughs> no, fuck no. Yeah, no. Not good, Oleg. <laughs> yeah, bad move, Oleg. So Ugh. not only that, it was proven that they visited Russia numerous times for the sole purpose of obtaining weapons and various deadly chemicals. All of this ran pretty deep, and we can't imagine people were thrilled when word got out that they were involved. The Russian authorities had to be doing some hardcore damage control. Last week, we spoke about Yasuo Hayashi. It was known that Shoko Asahara had suspicions about Hayashi being a spy and that his loyalty to the group had been seriously questioned. In a desperate attempt to prove his worth, it was likely that he asked for an additional packet of sarin for the subway attacks. When word got out about this, the Japanese media dubbed him the murder machine. He was also single-handedly responsible for the majority of the deaths that day as well as around half of the injuries. Another one of the men had only punctured one of the two packets that he had, so in comparison, the fact that Hayashi was able to successfully pierce all three made him stand out. He was also found to be responsible for several other attacks prior to that date. To me, he's definitely one of the more, like, stereotypical scary cult members that you hear about. He was desperate to prove his loyalty, and because of that, he was willing to do anything Shoko Asahara wanted. The fact that he could just order these people to go around poisoning and killing the public and they did it without thinking is horrifying. It's, it's one thing to assassinate individuals because they're standing in your way or you need something specific from them. But when it comes to indiscriminately killing and injuring innocent and random members of the public, it becomes something else entirely. There was one goal and one goal only when it came to these attacks— mass public terror. How Om Shinrikyo was allowed to operate in any capacity after this is still completely beyond me. Like, I understand that the government was, uh, had their hands tied uh, in this case, but I, I still don't know how they didn't put their foot down. What's wild about all of this is that you think that the cult would actually be suffering at this point. But that being said, in mid-1997, it was announced that the group was not only making multiple attempts to grow, they were succeeding. Quite a few people didn't want to leave in the first place, but they were also actively seeking out ex-members. At first, they'd show up and ask them to come back. If that didn't work, they'd tell them that they'd go to hell for all of eternity if they didn't. Oh yeah, the old eternal damnation trick. <laughs> And if that didn't work, then they just threatened to chop off their fingers. And it often worked. Yeah, like that'll usually do it. Around this time, advocates for the victims of the Sarin subway attacks and their families continued to fight for their own justice. In a surprising turn of events, a trustee for the group agreed that 1.12 billion yen, or about the equivalent of 8.62 million US dollars, in restitution would be paid to survivors and to those who had lost their loved ones. And all of that sounds promising. It was a huge step from the 100 million yen that we talked about before. It was clear that the group had a lot of money. However, most of that money was already spoken for. The group had a huge amount of debt before this even happened. Unfortunately, this meant that in reality, the survivors would only ever see a small percentage of what was actually promised to them. In court, there was one name that kept coming up when prosecutors asked if anyone could have stopped the attacks. 
That name was Tomoko Matsumoto, the wife of Shoko Asahara. In part two, we mentioned briefly that she was far from innocent in all of this. We mostly talked about her in part one, and for those of you who do need the reminder, she was the one who helped Shoko Asahara set up his very first yoga studio. So she was there when all of this began. And prosecutors argued that she was there every step of the way. On the other hand, Tomoko was adamant that she was innocent and that she was far too busy worrying about her husband having affairs. In reality, she had been present during multiple murders. Tomoko Matsumoto was sentenced to seven years in prison for her involvement. During that time, various other members were arrested for multiple murders. Many were shocked to find out that one of the masterminds behind the attack, a former heart surgeon named Ikuo Hayashi, was spared the death penalty. He was, however, sentenced to serve life in prison with the possibility of parole in 20 years. The getaway driver who worked with Hayashi was, however, given the death sentence, which, if anything, that seems backwards to me. Me too. I tried to make that make sense. And the only thing that I can really come up with there is I think that uh, Hayashi just had a better lawyer. Uh, that's what I was going to say, too, because he's a doctor, and if, you know, his getaway driver wasn't in a educated or high-ranking position, then he probably didn't have a leg to stand on. Yeah. The driver of the converted refrigeration truck used in the Matsumoto apartment attacks was sentenced to 17 years in prison for his involvement during that deadly evening. He attempted to argue that he didn't know the gas in the truck was deadly, but no one really bought it, obviously. Kenichi Hirose, who was injured while participating in the subway sarin attacks, was sentenced to death. He attempted to file numerous appeals, but they were all rejected. Toru Toyoda met a similar fate. Masato Yokoyama was sentenced to serve life in prison without the possibility of parole along with his getaway driver. Yasuo Hayashi was on the run for almost two years after the attacks. When he was finally found, he was sentenced to death. The last of the members to be tried was Katsuya Takahashi after being on the run for a whopping 17 years. All in all, 13 members of Om Shinrikyo would be sentenced to death. What many people didn't know is that while all of this was happening, the group was continuing to grow. Their numbers in Russia were close to an all-time high and they had successfully recruited members in Ukraine and Kazakhstan. This was despite efforts made by those countries to ban them. And those members weren't doing anything outwardly nefarious. They mostly made their money by running various websites, and they also owned several small computer stores. While this doesn't sound like a lot, they had made something around 30 million in 1997 through these little ventures. By the time the fourth anniversary of the attacks had come, the group had been stripped of its religious status. This didn't stop them from further attempting to grow. Around this time, they purchased various properties across Japan to meet with members so that they could prepare for the end of the world, which according to Shoko Asahara was coming later that year. Well, we talked a little bit about that before. Spoiler alert, guys. It didn't happen. Surprise! <laughs> what is surprising is that around that time, the government declared that the group was no longer a threat. Which, can we all just agree that that's a really stupid suggestion? 
God. I don't know how you could jump to that conclusion so quickly after the attacks had happened. Like, I would have them under a microscope for decades. The rule should be that if you do something like this, you got to be good for, like, 25 years. Like, nothing. Like, your members can't get, like, a speeding ticket. Nothing. Like, you need to be good. And they were not being very good. No, we'd already seen them go back and forth a lot when it comes to whether the group is a threat or not. So part of that was due to the public pressure from both sides of the spectrum. Many wanted to see the group punished, while others didn't think the government had the right to interfere. This back and forth would go on for years. They would essentially declare the group a threat, then say they weren't, and then repeat the process. One thing was clear, though, they were trying to grow again, and whether or not that was a threat, well, it probably wasn't the best thing either way. Around this time, the group renamed itself Aleph. Shoko Asahara had long since stepped away to focus on the trial. The man to take over was Fumihiro Joyu, one of the higher-up members of the group who had not been under any suspicion of wrongdoing. Something interesting to note is that before they assigned him to be in charge, the group was run by Shoko Asahara's two preteen sons, which is just a bizarre <laughs> thought all on its own. Yeah. Um, either way, I- it looks like the group thought they needed to have a rebrand, so that's basically what they did. Because who would have thought that two teenage boys in charge of a cult would have been bad for business? And not even teenage, preteens. They were like, <laughs> what... 10 or 11 years old or something. I feel bad for these kids because I feel like they were probably like, ah, yes, these are Shoko Asahara's children. They can guide us. And they like threw these two kids like just down into the wolves and were like, all right, lead us. And they were like, okay. Yeah. yeah, Well, we just came from watching anime. I can do a cartwheel. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Along with this, they also removed concerning doctrines as well as publicly apologized to the victims of the sarin attacks. They also took away all controversial literature in an effort to prove that they were only focused on peace. The Japanese public maintained a distrust towards the group despite all of the changes they made. Not that you could blame them. While the group has denounced many of their former beliefs, they still follow many of the spiritual teachings of their former leader, Shoko Asahara. Aleph still has a website up, and if you go to it, you can read Joyu's response to the attacks, his promises for reform within the group and all of that. Like, they have a whole PR department section. Like, it's actually what it's called. Mm-hmm. It's- yeah, when you sent me the link, I checked it out, and I was like, huh, look at that. You know, I saw that. I was like, that's that's real. That's a thing. Wow. You should, well, Dina's going to do her little behind the scenes this week, but you guys should definitely go check out the Aleph uh, website because it is something else. It's it's a thing. It sure is. (laughs) As the years went on, the group members split into two different factions. One side wanted to continue moving towards a peaceful approach and as far away as possible from their horrid history, while the other side supported a more fundamentalist viewpoint. Joyu supported the peaceful approach, and he split away in 2007 in order to start a group of his own with no direct ties to Om Shinrikyo or Shoko Asahara. This new group was called the Circle of Rainbow Light, which is definitely less threatening than Om Shinrikyo or uh, what Om Shinrikyo is translated to, which is Supreme Truth. This new group was certainly better received than the new Aleph. Many members of the public liked their overall approach to life, and they were actually looked at as sort of small celebrities by many. 
in a lot of articles, they're actually compared to like pop idols. On the other hand, Aleph found themselves under fire when a series of photos from one of their compounds was taken by the Public Security Intelligence Agency. One of them showed a knife stabbing a large pile of papers. Among these papers were photos of various former Ohm enemies, including members of the police, lawyers who helped members escape, and basically anyone else that they still held a grudge against. They were also still very openly worshipping Shoko Asahara, and all of this together was pretty damn concerning. In 2016, Russia once again saw that the group was growing and decided to make further attempts to ban the group. They raided their compounds and confiscated their literature and anything else that was directly related to them. And 2016 brings us to something that completely blew my mind. So I was looking up just like everything I could find about the group and I found an article that talks about Om Shinrikyo slash Aleph members in the Balkans. So, like, holy fuck. So they first hit Montenegro, which is a part of former Yugoslavia, Mm -hmm. uh, where they attempted to recruit members, and they actually successfully had, like, 60-some members there. Um, Interesting. But there's also some proof that Om Shinrikyo attempted to recruit members from my home country of Bosnia, which, holy fuck. No kidding. I wonder if because of all the conflict that was happening around that time, if they're like, yeah, we can probably swoop in and grab a few people that are feeling pretty hopeless and disillusioned. Unfortunately, stuff like that is a huge problem there and it does happen. Um, I bet. To like an even bigger extent. Uh, But this was something because like to me, I just pictured like I picture Bosnia and I picture Om Shinrikyo and I'm just like, What? Like, again, it's, again, it's, it's two, two different yeah. cultures, yeah. Because I can imagine Bosnians going like, um, all right, weirdos, what the hell are you doing? I, I'm like, I'm even trying to, like, imagine just a typical, like, Bosnian person's reaction. Because even my mom's reaction to them, my family's reaction to them, it's just something that you don't see that there. Apparently, um, quite a few members of their Montenegro sect showed evidence of, quote-unquote, ritualistic injuries. During this time, members were also paying a lot of money to be allowed to join the group, as well as for various study sessions with their gurus. And those study sessions were up to $10,000 per session, just FYI. So it looks like they were really kind of starting to become a red flag even more so and go back to a lot of their old shenanigans. Shortly after the executions of many of the OM members involved in the sarin attacks, including Shoko Asahara himself, a man crashed his car into a large group of people, injuring nine of them. The driver claimed that he wanted to hurt as many people as possible in retaliation for an execution. He didn't specify which one, but many believed that he acted due to one of the OM executions. That was in 2019. In May of 2022, the United States removed Om Shinrikyo from their list of terrorist organizations, deeming that they were now considered inactive. And that's pretty well that. After the death of Shoko Asahara, his family fought with cult members over his remains, and they also fought within themselves. Uh, Shoko Asahara asked for his remains to be given to his fourth daughter. However, his second daughter argued that the remains should go to her because he was not in the right state of mind to decide properly. 
some former O members also wanted the remains for themselves. And we keep saying remains, but we just want to mention that he was cremated. They weren't, like, fighting over his body parts. I legitimately think they wanted to, like, bathe in his ashes or drink them, or at least some of them did. Like, I know that's disgusting. I know that's morbid and terrible to say, but I truly think they wanted to. At this point, you could tell me that they wanted to snort his ashes, like um, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones, and I'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah. That's, that makes sense. Yeah, I would also believe that they were going to pay 10000 a pop for it, too. Oh, absolutely. The ashes were, in the end, given to his second daughter, who stated that she did not want them to be used religiously or spiritually, and that she actually just wanted to quietly grieve. She had left the group in 2000 and wanted nothing to do with them. As a result of the attack, many things changed in Japan. Use of CCTV cameras on subway systems increased along with a police presence. This has allowed for an extremely low rate of crime on the subways, and while the attack is still in the back of many people's minds, hopefully these changes can at least help people feel a little bit safer. Many researchers argue that the cult members should not have been executed as quickly as they had, and that there was a huge opportunity that was missed when it came to this entire thing. I found this really interesting, and it brought up a really good point. They essentially talk about how this could have been a really, really uh, fascinating opportunity to study groups like this, along with their members, to not only understand them better, but to help make sure this kind of thing didn't happen again. One researcher that was interviewed talks about how this is what she wishes would have happened from a scientific standpoint, but that the public's desire to have justice carried out quickly was something that she completely understood. Many surviving members have been interviewed since, and you can find a lot of this footage online. A lot of them still maintain that their years within the group were the best of their life, and that to this day, they find it hard to believe that something they thought was so peaceful ended in such devastation. Which makes me wonder, was it actually peaceful? Were they brainwashed? Or was it both? I maintain, when you dedicate that much of your time, money, and energy to something like this, it can be really hard to walk away, especially when you've lost your friends and family over it like many of these people had. I can also imagine that in a lot of the time in situations like this, it's easier to remember the good times rather than the bad. But it also surprised me to see the amount of fondness that so many of them still have towards the group and even towards Shoko Asahara himself. Which brings us all the way to the end of our Om Rikyo series. This was a lot of fun for me. I <laughs> love cults. They've fascinated me for a long time. And I'm honestly so glad that we picked Om Rikyo for our first cult on the podcast. Me too. Like we kind of chatted about who we want to cover next for the next cult. And we're excited to share that with you when the time comes. Mm -hmm. The craziest part for me is always how so many people get pulled into these kinds of organizations, especially when they have the wackiest practices. Like some cults, at first, on very like surface level, you could see how someone would be interested. But then as soon as I like took a step in and was like, oh shit, we drink him bath water. I think I'm going to have to uh, ghost you people now. Yeah, um, I think I'm good. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But Anyway, all that being said, um, for the next few episodes, we have some fun ones coming your way uh, over the next few weeks as we are working towards episode 50. Which is going to be a huge series. 
bigger than anything we've done so far. Mm -hmm. Also, the one year anniversary of our very first episode release is coming up. And we have big news that we're going to be sharing around that time too, like big Big, 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 big stuff. So all sorts of wonderful and great things coming up. Yeah, we're both excited. And as always, we really appreciate all of you. This week on Patreon, I'm going to be doing a deep dive into more of Aleph's practices. So please check us out on there if you haven't already. Charlotte did a phenomenal job on the Saren video last <laughs> week. You. And we have a lot of really great stuff there. We are also going to be recording another one of our bedtime ghost stories for our patrons. If you haven't listened to any of those, you should, because they're great. And with all that Patreon talk, a huge thanks to our amazing VIPs. So as always, a huge, huge thank you to Lisa, Brian, Hillary, Mudkip, and Pink Flamingo 20. You guys rock. And a huge thank you for all of the love over on YouTube. We're working towards getting partnered there, so make sure you are subbed and leave us some love. Until next week, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on all of the fun social media things. You can also find us on social media, and we're going to link all that good stuff below along with some other fun links. Thanks for listening. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. curriculum. Should you ever have the opportunity to pick up a decapitated human head, make sure you use two hands, as it often surprises people that it is not round and balanced like a bowling ball, and so most people, when picking up a head for the first time, immediately drop them on the floor. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, now that's something you know. Okay, bye guys. Bye!